Good morning. We uh, we were on sabbatical two summers ago in California, and we were were living near the beach. Uh, and, and, and every morning I, I noticed something. And then when we came back from sabbatical, we were living in Port Stewart for a year, and I noticed the same thing there every morning. That was this, that early in the morning you would get these people walking around the beach with these metal sticks, metal detectors, yeah? The early hours of the morning trying to find anything valuable. And, and I don't know, when I see people like that, I kind of think, like, do you really find anything and in some places, it almost feels like there's a competition between two or three of them. You know, they're, they're almost shoving each other out of the way. And, and you kind of think, you know, like, you must have better things to do between seven and nine in the morning than, than walk around a beach uh, and, uh, and try to find uh, old tin cans or whatever it is that you're finding. And then I read a story, like the one I read recently, and the headline in the Telegraph newspaper was this, Treasure Hunters Find Iron Age Gold in Farmer's Field the earliest ever discovered. And the article said this, intricate jewellery found buried in a Staffordshire field is the earliest example of Iron Age gold ever found in Britain. The collection made up of four twisted metal neckbands and a bracelet was discovered by two metal detectorists. That's the technical name for them. In case you're wondering, there's probably a metal detectorist club if you want to join it somewhere just before Christmas. Experts said they would have been owned by wealthy, powerful women who probably moved from continental Europe to marry rich Iron Age chiefs. The pair who discovered the find had swept the field. This was a bit that interested me. They had swept the field 20 years earlier and uncovered nothing. But after abandoning a fishing trip to go treasure hunting, they came across the hoard, which could be worth hundreds of thousands of pounds. The latest discovery was found about 45 miles north of another find in 2009, which is officially valued at three point two million. And so when I read that I went down to Argos and I <laughs> I invested but I have found nothing. But why do I why do I tell you that story? Well for a number of reasons. There's two reasons really. And the first one is this that um, it seems that when we're reading church history that there's certain biblical truth, certain kingdom principles, certain um, certain principles of God's kingdom that that were prominent at one stage but then get buried. And there comes a time when God unearths them. And so in the 50s, healing came back. For, for years, the church hadn't been praying for anyone for healing. In the 60s, we had the charismatic renewal. Uh, and we've had different eras where these things, the, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the apostolic, and, and we've had all these things that have been buried for even centuries. Uh, and, and, and these kingdom principles, these kingdom foundations, and suddenly they are dug up. And I think one of these principles is honor, the principle of honor. And over the last five years, God has been restoring the principle of honor to his church. Here's just a few of the books. If you go to the next slide there, just in the last few years, these are just, uh, there's probably 20, 30 more that I could put up, but these are just a few of the books. 10 years ago, you would not have found one book on honor in the church and honor and how we relate to one another. And yet, like these lost coins in Spain, honor is a treasure that's been dug up and rediscovered by the church. So that's one way that that ties in with the story is that, that there's treasures that have been dug up. And the other way is this. It's the key passage I want to look at as we think about honor this morning. What I want to do is over the next few weeks, I'd plan to start a series on Acts, but I felt I was to hold off on that. Um, I want to look at some kingdom culture principles. 
See, what I have discovered is kingdom culture principles can be different than church behavior. There's things that we do in church that we assume are normal behavior that are not kingdom behavior. There's ways we behave and relate towards one another. And in church, we have just learned that as part of church culture, but they're not kingdom culture. And as the church, Jesus, Jesus talked more about the kingdom than he talked about the church. I think he mentioned the church once, possibly twice. He talked about the kingdom the whole way through the Gospels. He talked about it through parables. He talked about what the kingdom looked like. So we want to be a kingdom church. We want to be a church. And when he taught us to pray, he said, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, as a body of people, this culture that we find in here should look something like a kingdom culture. Uh, and so what I want to do is look at a short parable. Hello. Um, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Honor, a forgotten virtue. Honor is a virtue which I think is almost extinct in the 21st century, and yet the concept of honor still has the power to move us. Think about the great action movies, the great war movies that win Oscars, the films that where, where people display incredible honor and courage and bravery, where they put aside their own needs, where they put aside their own lives for, for the sake of others. In most of the great blockbusters, you will find honor interwoven through the plot. And when we see honor on the big screen, we applaud it, we, we value it, we love to see honor, we love to see people displaying honor, we love to see people displaying that sense of virtue and courage. And yet, how often can we applaud it when we see it elsewhere, but not live it in our own lives? We, we live in an era where, where honor is almost foreign in our generation. We live in an era where, and I'm not going to just dish young people, because I count myself as one, Um, but but young people are almost taught to disrespect authority, aren't they? Let's be honest. Or at least to treat it with suspicion. And I I get part of it because we have seen in in the last 10, 15 years in the church, in in the government, in so many places, we have seen authority used and abused. We have seen... uh, And even in the movie industry at the minute, we're seeing that, aren't we? Uh, A number of years ago, it was in in the government with the the expenses thing and all that. And we've seen it in the church with the abuse cover-ups. And so all of those things that, that young people and people used to look up to and respect, we have seen the failings very publicly. And therefore, we have grown suspicious and dishonoring towards anyone who offers, who, who holds office position our title and our pop culture feeds into this mainstream music uh, disses anybody um, who has authority tv shows the way kids talk to their parents on tv like even when i was younger you would never have saw that how husbands and wives communicate politics i mean we don't have to look too far to see politicians who can't speak a civil word to each other reality tv the news, the fake news, the way people relate to one another, there's such a lack of honor and disrespect towards one another. And I think there's also something in us in this culture where we, 
Australians call it tall poppy syndrome, where we actually like to cut people down. We don't like people to get too big for their boots. And we think, you know, we want to bring them down a peg or two. Uh, and when we see anyone doing well, we, we, we just think it's our job to, to make sure that they don't uh, get too proud or, or arrogant. And I'm very aware that honour can be and has been misused and abused by those in authority. I have seen it in my own life and I've seen it in other places. But that doesn't mean we ignore it. It means we learn to honour appropriately and right. Honour might be considered an old-fashioned thing, a thing from the past. Um, but hopefully today we'll see how powerful honour is and how honour can totally change our lives, transform our culture, and impact the lives of those around us. A lifestyle of honor affects your marriage, your family, your job, your finances, your church, your friendships, your relationships. In fact, honor affects everything. And again, I come back to, you know, when we, when we see honor elsewhere, we applaud it. Think about some of the movies. Think about Braveheart. Schindler's List, Robin Hood, Hacksaw Ridge, one of the more recent ones. Remember the guy who was a pacifist soldier, but he was willing to risk his own life to save so many lives? Saving Private Ryan, Rocky, Shawshank Redemption, James Bond, Indiana Jones, Die Hard, Die Hard 2, Die Hard with a Vengeance, Live Free or Die Hard, A Good Day to Die Hard. All of those classics we applaud honour, and yet we... Don't live it. I know we have a number of teachers here. Those of you who have been teachers for 20 years will have noticed that there's been a trend towards dishonor and authority. Uh, And that's something which I think as the church we need to rectify. So what is honor? The concept and language of honor runs right through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. In fact, the word honor is used over 200 times in the Bible. It is not a small concept. It is not one random verse I've picked from Ezekiel to make a sermon around. There's 200 references to honour in the Bible. Russell Evans, an Australian pastor, says this. It's a pretty bold statement. All through the Bible, the value of honour is the essence of the kingdom of God. In fact, I believe that honour is the foundational truth of the kingdom. Everything revolves around this topic of honour. Everything happens because of honour. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is kabod or kavod is actually the way it's pronounced. And in the New Testament, it's the Greek word tameo. And and they both mean essentially the same thing. They both mean heavy or weighty. The word honor in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, means heavy or weighty. Now, to honor someone, that doesn't mean that you call them big boy or fat girl. Okay, that is not a title of honor. But it comes from a time... When, when people used to wear shekels, they used to wear coins. And the heavier the coins on the scale, the greater value they were worth. Do you understand that? That they would wear these shekels and, 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 and by how heavy they were, they would place a value on the coins. And it's exactly the same with honor. The more you put value on something, the more weight it has on your life. The more you put value on something or someone, the more highly you esteem them, the worth they have, how precious they are. And the opposite of honor is obviously dishonor. The Greek word is atoma, and it means to not show respect or value, to treat as common, ordinary, or menial. 
if you were to speak to a, a Greek person, a man or woman, he or she would, would, would think of something about dishonor. If you were to talk, use the word atoma to a Greek person, they would think of something lighty and light and, and, and weightless, like a, a feather or a, a bit of dust or a bit of paper or, or a vapor or a bit of straw or a bit of grass, just something that just isn't weighty or important to them. And then there's an even stronger form of dishonor where someone is deliberately or intentionally dishonored. And we see that in shame cultures, don't we? Where people are deliberately shamed or humiliated. When you dishonor someone or something, you treat it as common and you don't place much value on it. So let's go back to the verse we read earlier from Jesus in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. And my first point, or maybe it's my third by this stage, I'm not sure. Uh, We all have a field and we all have a treasure. We all have a field and a treasure. In the parable, Jesus talks about a treasure and he talks about a field. And what I've discovered is that every single person has a treasure and every single person has a field. Every person in here is a field with a treasure hidden within it. The field is this. It's simply the, the mucky, muddy part of us. The behavior you don't like. The character traits that annoy you. The things that a person has done in the past that are less than perfect. That's the field in all of us. And the thing about the field is it's the most visible part of us. It's the bit that as we look at others, as we look at ourselves, that we tend to notice first. We see the stuff we don't like But here's what happens. Often we get so focused on the field, on the muck and the dirt, on the things that we don't like, on the things that annoy us, on the flaws and the imperfections, that we totally miss the treasure. We never allow ourselves to get close to someone because all we can see is the field. And we never get close enough to actually dig and realize that beneath that dirty, mucky field there is a treasure underneath the soil. Like the two guys who found the treasure in that newspaper article I read at the start. It was just a field. It was like any other field. They'd searched it before and they'd found nothing. They had to go back and take a closer look. You see, with any field, the, ca- the casual passerby will never uncover the treasure. Because as we read in this parable here, it was hidden from view. The treasure was hidden. It's not obvious. And the reality is this. Unless you learn to accept the field with all the flaws, you will never access the treasure. Unless we learn to, act, uh, to, to, to accept the field with all the flaws that are visible, we will never access the treasure which might not be so visible. I love what Pope Francis says. Somebody who I probably won't quote too often from the pulpit, you might be glad to hear. But Pope Francis said this. I have a dogmatic, dogmatic certainty. God is in every person's life. Even if the life of a person has been a disaster, even if it's been destroyed by vices, drugs, or anything else, God is in this person's life. You can, you must try to seek God in every human life. Although the life of a person is a land full of thorns and weeds, there's always a space in which good seed can grow. And the reason that God's in every person's life is not because they have Christ in their hearts, it's because they're made in the image and likeness of their creator who is God. You need to get past the dirt before you can see the diamonds. You need to wade through the gory before you can see the glory. 
You need to move past the mess before you can see the miracle. God is wanting to reveal the treasure in the people around you, but often we don't take the time to look beyond the field to discover the treasure buried beneath, the gold that God has put within him, within them. It's hidden and most people don't see it. Only those who get close and look, only those who dig and search, get to see the treasure that's within people. You know, when you marry somebody, and those of you who are married will be able to say a good amen to this, you don't just marry the treasure, you also marry the field. (laughs) On the first date or two, you see the treasure. They hold open the door, pull out your seat, they wash, they use Lynx Africa, they, you know, you, they, they do their best, they, 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 they comb their hair, they, they try not to make bodily noises apart from speech. They're on their best behavior. They let you see what they want you to see. They hide their field and their treasure is in glorious display. And then you marry them. Obviously not in my case, sweetheart, but in other cases... You discover that the treasure has a big, mucky field around it. That you didn't just marry a treasure. Two years after marriage, you discover, you know what, there was a lot of field around that treasure. (laughs) And it's only as you learn to love the field that you really get to access all the treasure. Because here's the thing, there's much more treasure even than you realize was there. There's much more treasure than they showed you in the first few dates. And if you keep digging, if you keep loving the field, if you keep honoring them in spite of the field, you will discover depths and depths of treasure that you would never discover if you were just put off when you find the field. And just on a side note, girls, single girls, beware of guys who want the treasure but have no intention of buying the field. <laughs> Tell them you've got to get all of me to get the best of me. I was for free. I, I, I come up here on a Sunday and I, I try to give you the treasure. I study 15, 20 hours a week. I prepare and, and I try to give you what I've got. My, you, you hopefully get some treasure out of this. My wife gets a treasure. She also gets the field. She gets the muddy Saturday afternoons when I'm sitting and I'm stressed because I, I'm struggling to put a message together. She gets yesterday where I was preoccupied most of the day because not only was I preaching here today, but I had to drive to Donica Day last night to preach at half seven, was back at about half eleven at night, a different message than I'm preaching this morning. Uh, and she gets to see all that I'm preoccupied. We go lot for lunch and I'm sitting thinking about what am I going to preach, how am I going to communicate, how am I going to say this. She gets the insecurity when I go home on a Sunday and I go, I could have said that better, I could have said that differently because I'm my biggest critic. <laughs> And we all are, you know. And so she gets the treasure, but she also gets much more of the field than you get. Because the closer we are to someone, the more we see the field and the treasure. The closer you are to someone, the more you see not only the treasure, but also the field. And honor allows us to access the treasure. In fact, the test of honor is this. It's how we respond when the field shows up, but we still can't see the treasure. How do you respond to people when only the field is visible but you cannot see the treasure? You know, when we look at the characters in the Bible, what I love about God is God looks beyond the field to the treasure. God calls out the treasure. God comes to a guy hiding in a wine press because of the Midianites and he looks at Gideon and he says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. This guy's hiding, he's shaking, he's cowering from the enemies of God. And God says, you're a mighty warrior. And Gideon's going, who are you talking to? He shows up to Moses, 
a fugitive in the back end of a desert, hiding from uh, Pharaoh because of committing murder. And he says, you're my deliverer. You're the one who's going to set my people free. He shows up to an insignificant shepherd boy and he anoints him the next king of Israel. He looks at Simon who has foot and mouth disease, who, who Simon in the Bible, the disciple, who literally if, if he can say the wrong thing, he says the wrong thing. And he shows up to him and he calls him Rocky. He says, you're Rocky, you're Peter, you're Petros, and on you I will build my church. He shows up to Mary, an unwed virgin, and he calls her blessed among women, even though she feels like she's an absolute nobody. Honor is the ability to recognize that there's a treasure in the field and to call it out of the person. Honor means relating to someone according to his or her God-given identity. Let me repeat that because I feel like that's really significant. That we don't relate to people as who they are, but we relate to people as who God created them to be. We call out the gold. We call out the treasure. We call out the goodness that God has put within them. Because if you only call out the negative, what are you going to get? A lot more negative. But if you start to say, you know, we do it with our children, don't we? Like they bring home the worst painting you've ever seen and you tell them it's like a Van Gogh. Like, and you put it in the fridge and like it's hideous. (laughs) Well, I just don't listen. Um, but you do, don't you? You know why? Because you want to call out the treasure. You want to call out the gold. You want to, to pull out the treasure that's, that's within them. Why do we do it with children, but we don't do it with each other? Honor looks for the gold. Honor refuses to reduce people to labels that hide their true identity and worth. Danny Silk says this. Honor leads with love, and creates zones where people feel safe and important. Through honor, masks come off, walls come down, and hearts come out. People's gifts are revealed, affirmed, and released. And Bill Johnson says this, giving honor actually releases the life of God into a situation. You don't have to like everything about a person to honor them. If you're waiting to like everything about a person, you will probably honor nobody. But as you honor them, here's the thing I've discovered. As you honor them, you actually discover that there's things that you like about them. It's not about kissing up to somebody. It's not about currying favor. It's about a biblical principle that we show to others. Not even because we think they're always honorable. We don't honor people because they deserve it. We honor people because we decide it. And that's really important. There's been so many times when I've had to honor people, not because I've thought they deserved it, but when I've decided, and it's not always been easy, and I'll talk about a few incidents later where I got it wrong, and I got it right two different times. But when I've chosen, when I've made a decision to honor someone, even when I don't think they deserve it, God always rewards it. Because honor is so important to him. We are a people who choose to honor. Honor is my standard, even if it is not yours. That's what we need to decide. Even if the person is not worthy of honor, honor is my standard because I'm a kingdom person. And I will choose to live a life of honor. I will choose to show honor, even if I'm not shown honor, because we are people of honor. 
And when we show honor, it creates an environment where the gifts that are in that person are able to come to the fore because honor actually draws the best out of people. You know, when we moved to Dublin <coughs> six and a half years ago, they just appointed a new archbishop. His name was Michael Jackson, which was just brilliant. Um, it was a real thriller to meet him. Um, no, that was bad. Yeah, I know I could, I could go all day. I could go all day, but don't, don't. Um, but uh, I'm trying in my head to go through all the Michael Jackson songs, but uh, I won't, I won't, I won't, I won't. If you want to make the world a better place. Um, but, you know, I, I, here's how I was, I was told this. I was told, you know what, watch out for him. He doesn't like your type of church. He doesn't like your type of Christian. He doesn't like your style of worship. So watch out for him because he'll be out to get you. And when we moved there, I made a conscious decision. I am going to honor my archbishop. And can I tell you something? He became a good friend during those five years in Dublin. A dear friend. I see Becky shaking her head there. Or nodding her head. Not shaking. No, he did, didn't he? He actually became a dear friend. We, he, it got to the stage where it was almost embarrassing. He would stand up at diocesan synod and tell all the other churches that they needed to be more like ours. And they were furious at him. He would, he would uh, send us uh, Christmas cards from Mr. Red Sox because Becky made a comment once about him wearing red socks. I mean, this is the arch. He would phone me on a Saturday and tell me he wasn't well. Um, and we had a, a woman in our church owned pharmacist. And at pharmacies, and I was able to get him antibiotics waiting for him at his local pharmacy. And he just so appreciated that I was able to honor him. And that developed a really close relationship. But it all started with honor. It all started with me not listening to what other people were telling me about him because all they were saying was the field and I decided, you know what, there's got to be treasure in there somewhere. And when I looked, there was a lot more treasure than anyone else had seen because when you approach somebody based on what you've heard about them or what others have said about them, you will only see those things. You will find what you're looking for. When you look at people and you've heard something or you think something, you will find something to back up your prejudice. But if you start saying, I'm going to... Find the gold in this person. You will find gold. It might only be a nugget, but you will find gold in them. And what I've discovered is this, that honor releases favor in relationships. And you benefit from the resources that come with that. I benefited from that honor that I showed the archbishop. And everything God gives us in life comes through people. We pray for things. I have never had something fall from down, down from the sky as an answer to prayer. But I've had God use people to give me many things that I needed. They come through other people giving me something of their treasure, their gifts, their talents, their influence, their access, their wisdom, their financial resources, their time. Our resources are in our relationships. And honor helps them to release those things into our lives and us to release what we have into their lives. Because here's what I've discovered. What God has put in me is not just for me. It's for everyone else. And what God has put inside you is not just for you. It's for everybody else. The treasure inside you is not just for you to store up, but it's for you to share with the community around you. But those treasures are released, accessed, and discovered through honor. And so as Christians, it's our job to discover, draw, and pull out the treasure of other people. But it all depends on our focus. Do we look for the field or do we look for the treasure? Honor brings out the best in others and dishonor actually diminishes our ability to fully receive what other has. 
that others have. Dishonor dis- diminishes. Look further, if, you, if you're in Matthew 13, it'll be on the screen, but if you were to look further down the field after this parable about the treasure, it's interesting what happens. I wonder, did Matthew have something in mind when he put this uh, a little bit later on in, in Matthew 13, beginning at verse 53? When Jesus had finished these parables, including the one we've just talked about, the treasure in the field, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this a carpenter's son? Isn't this Mary's uh, son, Mary? And aren't, or sorry, isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. And here's the bit, he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Another translation says this, he could not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. This is incredible. Jesus has been out on tour, if you like. And he's been all around the place and he's been preaching, teaching, healing, delivering, setting free. Anyone who comes to him with a sickness, a disease, with demon possession, he has set them free. He goes back to his hometown to take a rest and also to help people there. And when he gets to his hometown, all they can see is the local boy who grew up among them. Joseph's son, the carpenter, the one they had known all their lives. And familiarity breeds contempt or at least it breeds indifference here. The people were so over-familiar with the field that they had watched growing up that they totally missed the treasure that everybody else was able to access. And in doing so, they showed him great dishonor. Look at what it says. They took offense at him. In other words, their attitude was, who does he think he is? We know he's a local boy. He might be a big shot over there, but hey, he's among his own people now. We'll bring him down a peg or two. Standing up there doing all that stuff. He doesn't deserve special treatment. He's ordinary. Let's bring him down to size. And look at what it says. Jesus said to him, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. But he did not or could not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Jesus actually says these people have dishonored him. They haven't valued who he is or what he carries. They've treated him as common and with disrespect. And because of their dishonor, he did not do many miracles there. The dishonor prevented them from able to receive all that he had come to bring them. It's almost like dishonor shut something down in Jesus. And that's what happens in our own lives, isn't it really? When somebody dishonors you, it shuts something down within you towards that person. You don't want to give them your best. You don't want to give them your heart. You don't want them to get the gold. Because something is shut down when you feel dishonored. Where when you feel honored by somebody, you want to pour out everything you have to bless them. And that's what happens with Jesus. And and it's so sad because I can just imagine in Jesus' community all the sick, all the demon-possessed, the crippled, the deaf, the lame, who went away not healed that day. Not because of their own fault, but because of the dishonor that others had shown to Jesus. It shut something down and it blocked the flow of life from him to his people, from Jesus to his people. So the principle is this. Whatever you honor is drawn towards you and it gives you the ability to also access all it is and has. And whatever you dishonor, you actually push away from you 
and it denies you access to the treasure within. They dishonored Jesus, and because of that, they couldn't access what he had brought with them. The limitation was never on Jesus' capacity to give. It was on their capacity to receive. And honor brings spiritual breakthrough in our lives. Honor unlocks and draws out what God has put within other people. And where there is dishonor, it diminishes what we can receive. So what's our response? As I finish up, just a few principles. (coughs) Where are we at? Okay, a few minutes. Honor up. Honor up. The Bible talks very clearly about honoring those in authority over us. And all honoring begins with honoring God. Everything related to honor begins with honoring the one true God, our creator. Give glory to the Lord, it says in Joshua 7, the God of Israel, and honor him. In other words, give him the weight, the the worth, the value that he deserves. If we can't honor God, we will never be able to properly honor other people. If you can't honor your creator, how can you honor the created? Look at Malachi 1. A son honors his father and a slave his mother. This is God speaking to his people through a prophet. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where's the honor due to me? If I am a master, where's the respect due to me, says the Lord Almighty. See, the people were showing up at church. They looked like they were honoring God. They were going through the motions. They were going through the the rituals of worship. They were sacrificing, but they weren't giving God their best. They were bringing animals to God that that were their worst animals. Like they were bringing the animals to God that had defects and, and, and they were giving and thinking that God wouldn't notice. And God says, you wouldn't give that to somebody else, another human, and you think it's okay to give it to me. You're actually dishonoring me. Their worship was superficial. They thought they could fool God, but he sees right through their half-hearted commitment. He says, you've dishonored me, you've disrespected me, you've shown contempt. You know, it would be like coming into church and worshiping our hearts out and raising our hands and, and, and just being the most expressive worshiper that there is in the room, but being stingy towards God and our finances or your time, your talents, your private devotion, or walking out of here and, and talking about people, or walking out of here and, and seeing somebody in need and turning your back on them, or walking out of here and being critical of others. That's what it's like. It's like saying, you know what, God, I'm going to worship you, but I'm going to show dishonor when I get out of here. Look at what Proverbs says about honor. Honor the Lord with your wealth. That's why we give. That's one of the reasons we give. Because it honors God. It's saying, God, I value you so much that I am willing to go without. I'm willing to give you the first fruits. I'm willing to give you the first of my salary, of my income, of the money that you've blessed me with. Give him the first and the best, not the dregs and the leftover. Honor should cost something. It's very easy to start. Lifting your hands and worship costs Nothing. When somebody has treated you with disrespect and dishonor, for you to honor them costs something. It costs your pride. For you to give financially costs something. For you to love the unlovable person costs something. And this is a problem that's always been prevalent among God's people. Look at what Isaiah says. These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips. Their honor is external, but what about their hearts? Their hearts are far from me. Dishonor is thinking that you can do the minimum, that you can give the least and that God won't notice. Where honor is where you say, God, you have everything. All I am, all I have, I'm going to bow the knee and surrender. And it's all yours because you are worthy. You're valuable. You're more valuable to me than anything else. 
Honouring up also means honouring our father and mother. A command that was quoted to me many times in my childhood. Honour your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live long. In our house that meant if you showed dishonour, you wouldn't live very much longer. Um, <coughs> that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. For some of us, I understand this is easy, and for some of us, this is going to be much more difficult. Because your parents let you down. They failed you, they hurt you, they even abandoned you. And so when you read something about honouring your father and mother, you say, you know what, you have no idea what my parents were like. But notice the commandment doesn't say to like them. It doesn't say to love them. It doesn't say to be friends and go for coffee with them. It doesn't even say I agree with them. It says to honour them. Try to find a speck of treasure in a really big mucky field. Try to find something good they did, even if it's just one thing. One thing that you can ascribe honor to. One moment when they were kind or thoughtful or helped someone. Dig for the treasure and honor that. The Bible says also that we're to honor those in authority over us, both in society, i.e. in government, if we had one, and in the church. Fear God, honor the emperor. Now, when you read that, that you know, you see that, I used to see that in or, 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 arches. Don't you fear God, honor the king? We've got to remember when this was written, the emperor was the one who was persecuting and killing Christians. In the first century, this is in First Peter. First Peter is a letter written to a persecuted church. And he's saying, honor the guy who's hunting you down and killing you. Honor is not, there, it's not about their uh, behavior, it's about our decision. It's not their standard, it's ours. The Bible also says to honor church leadership. And that's always awkward for any pastor to get up and say. But it's in the Bible, so I'm going to teach it to you. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. And in Northern Ireland, this is something we are pretty... Atro- I don't know if it's a Northern Ireland thing or where else it is, but it's something we're pretty atrocious at. We think it's okay to go around and talk about pastors and talk about... And you know, I'm not talking about pastors who have gone into heresy. Because in the Church of Ireland, we have had some of those. And you know what? It's very hard to honour those. To me, they should be put out of the church um, when, they, when they don't agree with the virgin birth, when they don't agree with the resurrection of Jesus, when they promote practices and sexuality or whatever. That's not, I, I, I don't honour their role in that, okay? I can honour them as individuals. I still look for the gold. It's not saying never disagree with your leader. It's not saying never question your leader. But it is saying, honour your leader. And what I found in Northern Ireland is this, that we're willing to honour them as long as they agree with us. As long as our pastor, our leader, our rector, whatever church background you're from, as long as they do what we want them to do, we will honour them. But as soon as they don't do what we want, one of two things will happen. We'll start talking about them or we'll leave the church. And here's what I found in this. That where a leader is dishonoured, that leader, if he's any wit, will move on. If a leader is constantly dishonoured by a community, there's no point in him staying there because the dishonour will shut down what God has put within that leader and he will not be able to give them what God has put within him. And And I've seen it time and time again. Some of you will know churches where every year or two leaders move on and it's probably because they've been dishonoured. If they don't move on, it's because they've nowhere else to go and you're stuck with them. 
That's one thing that happens. The other thing is this that happens. The person who's dishonoring the leader moves on to another church. And they love it, and it's the best thing, and it's so much better. And they go up to the minister in the first three weeks and say, this is so much better than my last church, until they disagree with that minister. And then six months later, they're somewhere else. This is a bit too convicting for some of you. But I have seen this time and time again. Like I say, I'm not saying leaders are above reproach. I'm saying but where you have godly leaders who are, who are sincerely trying to seek the heart of God, not immoral, not heretical, but when you have godly leaders, just because you disagree with them does not mean you dishonor them. And that's for the people listening on podcast as well, because we have hundreds of people who download this. Whatever church you're in, just because you disagree with leadership. When you go to a church, you choose to put yourself under their authority. Under their spiritual authority. You choose to do that. And if you cannot do that, then find somewhere else where you can. Like I said, this is not about them being heretical or immoral. If that's the way they are, find somewhere else anyway. But if you cannot submit to spiritual authority in God's house, then please find another house where you can. Because I have seen it again and again, where those who rebel against God's authority in the house, that never goes well for them. Never. I have seen horror stories, and I'm not even going to go there. And this is not about boosting. Like, you know, I, I, I'm a young guy who grew up just off Jervis Street and pointed out, okay, I have no errors and graces about myself. Like, I'm, very, I'm much more aware of my weaknesses and insecurities than you are, I can assure you. I see the field much more than you do. But this is about a biblical principle. And I don't care if you stay in this church or go somewhere else. You've got to honor your leadership. They're not faultless. They're not perfect. And you know what? Neither are you. Let's keep moving. I love where David and Saul, just as to finish. You know, I thought about an example David's on the run for, what, years from Saul. Saul's trying to hunt him down, throwing spears at him, trying to kill him. David has an opportunity in a cave. And he even cuts a corner off Saul's robe and he feels guilty over it because he's dishonored the leader that God has appointed. Let's go. Honor up, honor down. Honor down. The Bible also talks about honoring those who, in the world's eyes, are more needy or vulnerable or weak than we are. The poor, the lonely, the orphan, the widow. Again, it all starts with God. God shows honor to those who aren't honorable necessarily in the world's eyes. And that includes you and me. And this is where this all starts. In Romans 5, 8, it says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were just one big, stinking, dirty, mucky field, God gave his best for us. God saw beyond the field and he saw the treasure, the part of us that was made in his image and likeness. God gave his best when we were at our worst. Think of the story of the prodigal son. The son basically says to his dad, I wish you were dead, goes off and squanders his wealth, ends up in the pig pen eating pig food, decides to go home. And how does the father treat him? Does he kick him in the backside and tell him to go away? No, he honors him. He puts a ring on a finger, a ring of sonship. He puts sandals on his feet because only slaves went barefoot. And he puts the robe over him, the robe of righteousness, the robe to say, you're my son 
and he kills a fatted calf as a sign of honor. And we have all treated the Father with so much dishonor, yet he lavishes us with so much honor. He pours honor all over us. Hebrews 2 says this, he crowns us with glory and honor. We deserve nothing, but God gives us everything. And how can we not treat others in the world's eyes who are seen as dishonorable, who are seen as low status, who are seen as the the dregs of our society? If God treated us when we were in such a desperate state with so much honor, how can we not treat those who would be seen to be beneath us by human standards with honor? In fact, God sees this. It says this in Proverbs 14, whoever is kind to the needy honors God. When you're kind to somebody who the world would see as being unlovable or unworthy or unbeautiful, it actually honors God. When we honor people and there's nothing for you, see, it's really easy to honor someone when there's something for you in return. When you honor those from whom you can get nothing, God is honored. When you spend time with somebody who nobody else wants to be around, God is honored. When you bless a person in a supermarket or a petrol station or a restaurant, God notices that. I was out for dinner a while ago. It was a lunch, actually, in a hotel and two friends of mine. And uh, the service, to be quite honest, was below par. It was pretty average, actually. Um, but when, when my friend went to pay, one, it was two brothers, and when one of them went to pay, um, the, the other brother joked, I hope you gave her a good tip. And he said, actually, I did. He said, I give her a tip so much that she came back to me and said, I can't take that tip. And he said, I want you to take it. And here's why I want you to take it, because you have a God who loves you and, 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 and thinks that you're so valuable. And she nearly cried. He just, like, he, he wanted to honor her in whatever state or whatever condition she was in. Look for people to honor. Look for ways to honor people. Celebrate them. Don't just tolerate them. Honor up, honor down. Lastly, honor all around. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. So this is something for us as a whole church. Imagine if we all tried to out-honor each other. You know, like it would be a bit awkward, but you know what I mean? Like, I'm, no, I, no, I'm honoring you. No, I'm honoring you. What if we only looked for the treasure and stopped focusing on the field? What if we only talked about the good and other people instead of looking for the worst? What if we would celebrate the differences and diversity and be united in the things that matter most? What if we would call out the potential and rejoice when others are promoted and we're not? Instead of thinking, what do I need to say to this person? Because that's quite often what we think. What do I need to say to them? What if we asked ourselves, what do they need to hear right now? What could I say to encourage them? What could I say to honor them? What could I say to build them up right now? The impact would be unbelievable. Look at what Danny Silk says. Typically, people allow differences and mistakes to lower their respect and value for other people. But you know the pillar of honor is strong. In a, but you know the pillar of honor is strong in a relationship, and you can look at the other person and say, "This, you're really different from me." It makes me sad when I see you making that choice, but I love you, I value you, I believe in you, and I'm here for you in this relationship. Honor has the power to transform your life. Honor has the power to transform churches, businesses, schools, marriages, friendships, colleges, offices, factories, shops, and families. Honor can transform whole communities. But the key 
to honour his humility of heart. Look at what Paul said. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others. Value, honour others as better than yourselves. Honour flows from humility. Pride kills honour. Pride fears that if we honour others, it somehow diminishes us. When actually the opposite is true. When we honour others, it actually elevates us. And not only the other person. Proverbs says, before the down, before downfall, the heart is haughty. But, with, but humility comes before honour. Humility leads to honour. It's God's upside down kingdom. In a world where everybody's trying to push themselves to the front and God's kingdom, the way up is down. Russell Evans puts it like this. When you give a release honour, you attract honour. You create a desire in those around you to give honour back. And as I finish, again, um, it's, it's called a preacher's trick. If you say I'm finished, they breathe a sigh of relief. Um, you know, just as there's physical laws in the world and physical principles like gravity, if you jump from a building, you're going to hurt yourself. There's physical principles in the world that if you, if you go against them, you do yourself harm. There's also kingdom principles, and that's what we're going to be looking at over these coming weeks. Kingdom principles that God has built into his kingdom and his creation that you can't go against without hurting yourself. And things like forgiveness, service, generosity, the words we use, and honor. And when we ignore it or go against it deliberately, we're violating one of God's spiritual principles, and therefore we're actually harming ourselves. And what I've discovered is this, that we will nearly always receive a test of honor before we're promoted in God's kingdom. Before God moves you on to the next thing, the next calling, the next assignment that he has for you, there will probably be a test of honor where you are. There's certain tests God sets to see if we're ready. And you know what? It's a bit like in school. If you fail the test, you just keep retaking it until you pass. And one of them is nearly always the honour test. When I went to Lurgan, just a few stories, one where I got it kind of right and one where I got it wrong, but put it right. When I went to Lurgan, I I was a curate. Uh, There was a rector and another curate there. and Then there was a vacancy for about 18 months and I had led the church through the vacancy. And a number of times during that, I was asked if I'd be interested in becoming the rector of of Shankill. And and I said, no, I had no interest in it. And then a rector did come in uh, who I'd been at theological college with. And while I, I loved him dearly, he had a very different style than I had. And I'd been looking after the place for 18 months, which made it harder. And, uh, and, 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 and so over time, just it, it was tough at times because I could see things going that I, I'd say to him, what about me doing? And he would say, no, I'm doing it this way. And, and it's hard to believe, but grumbling started happening in the church and people started complaining, but they would come to me because I'd been there longer with their gripes. And at first it was subtle, and then it was more blatant. And I realized this was a really important test for me. And Becky and I talked about this, and we both decided as difficult as it was, we were going to honor this leader. And we would never speak to others negatively about him. In fact, we would only speak positively. When others came with complaints, here's what I would say. Why don't you just pray about it? Why don't you just pray for him? Or else I would just I just would turn away from the complaints completely. Why don't I? I'd say why don't you just seek God's blessing on him? And I believe this was a test of honor which prepared us for all that has led ahead since. That if we had failed that, we wouldn't have been blessed as we have been. 
In fact, he was one of my references for this church. I couldn't have asked him for a reference if I had dishonored him during that time. The reality is this. I will never be asked by God to give an account for his ministry, but I will be asked to give an account for my life and how I honored him. And I don't always get it right. There's one other minister who I dishonored. A friend, somebody who had been a dear friend, and I was on the leadership with him in an organization. And I, I dishonored the organization, actually. I just had frustrations. And one day I spoke about the organization. And I thought I was talking, but he, it was his baby, if you like. And so I was dishonoring him. And he, he, he was deeply hurt because he saw me as a close friend and confidant. Uh, and, and I didn't mean it, but I'd hurt him deeply. And I realized this. This was just in our last number of months in Dublin. And as I realized how much I dishonored him, one day I got the train to Belfast from Dublin. I walked from Central Station round to his house. I sat in his living room. I repented, and I told him I was sorry for dishonoring him. And I asked him, would he forgive me and restore the relationship, which graciously he did. And I'm so thankful for that because he's still one of my dearest friends. He preached me out of Dublin as my last sermon, and he preached me in here. You've all guessed who it is. He preached my institute or my, my introduction. He would not have done that if I had continued to show dishonor towards him. And he's one of my dearest spiritual uh, leaders and, and, and friends. And so, you know what? Even if you have dishonored people, you can put it right. You won't always get it right. I have messed up so often in this. But honor is both a language and a lifestyle. It's how we speak to people and it's how we speak about people. It's how we live our lives. There's a book called this, Everyone Loves You When You're Dead. (laughs) Isn't that true? I've probably done nearly 200 funerals. And you know, every funeral I do, you would think the person was somewhere between Mother Teresa. (laughs) Every funeral. Like I've done... Like some rough funerals, like like rough ones that I've nearly had to stop. I've done two funerals where the police have had to be called to because of fighting at the funeral. The same where there's a will, there's a fa- or where there's a what is it? Where, where there's a will, there's a family. I yeah, I'd say where there's a will, there's punch, punches sometimes. But uh, I have done some rough funerals. But you know what? In nearly every funeral, you'd think the person was just an angel. Five weeks before, they were talking about that person as if they were the worst in the world. But now they're gone. All they can see is a treasure. When two, three months before, all they could see is a big mucky field. And I said, tell me about your family member. And oh, they they never did harm to anybody. If they could do you a good turn, they would. I'm thinking, goodness, if only you'd spoken that over them while they were still alive. Why wait till they're dead to speak life over them, to call out the good that God has put within them and discover the treasure within? Start today. Let's commit to be a people from this day forward. Whatever we've done in the past, let's commit to be a community and a church that is a community of honor, that we look for treasure. Yes, you will see the field, and yes, at times you will have to address the field, and that's okay. I'm not saying overlook faults. I'm not saying ignore blatant. I'm not saying be a doormat, okay? I'm not telling you that at all. Please don't be a doormat. What I am telling you is that let's look for the treasure before we look for the field. Let's honor people and let's call out the gold.